Welcome to the Women's Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Sheridan House. We continue today in the series, Reflection, a Study of Philippians. If you missed any part of this series, you can find it and others online at sheridanhouse.org backslash WBS. We hope you enjoy today's lesson. I'm very glad to be here. I am back here on Tuesday nights, but I love this group and the energy, and I'm just grateful to be here with you today. So we're going to dive right in. If you want to open up your books, and the first thing you'll see there is a quote from Mark Twain. Few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. (laughs) Now, I could give you all kinds of like maybe spiritual mentors in my life and how they've blessed me, but I'm going to give you a different one. How many of you have gone to Cheesecake Factory and somebody gets a salad and doesn't eat cheesecake? It's like, what's the point, right? That's not why you go there. And then you kind of feel like, oh, well, I should get the salad and I should only have a half a piece of cheesecake, 50% less fat, right? So, um, so that's kind of a funny example. But we all, um, if we're honest, we have those people around us that in some ways they mot- motivate us because we're going, oh, I should be doing that too. And I'm very blessed that I'm in a a work environment at a Christian school where we're able to have like a weekly time of devotions as a team. And so we get together um, every Tuesday and there's five of us and three of them are at a different season than my friend and I and they're, they're kind of raised their children in a different pace of life. And they have different prayer requests every week. My friend April and I have the same prayer request every single week. We love our lives. We're very blessed. Please give us balance, whatever balance is, right, to try to, to, try to do it all. And um, one of my coworkers and friends um, gave me this beautiful poem that I love that I'm realizing after last night I should have had as a slide. So you can take a picture of it afterwards if you want. But she very sweetly gave this to me, and I thought it was a great example. She said, I'm grateful for early wake-ups because it means I have children to love. I'm grateful for a house to clean because I have a safe place to live. I'm grateful for laundry to do because I have clothes to wear. I'm grateful for even dirty dishes because I have food to eat. For crumbs under the table because of family meals. For grocery shopping because I have money to use. Toilets to clean because I have indoor plumbing. (laughs) Lots of noise, kids having fun, endless questions, a child who's learning. Getting in bed tired and sore, I'm still alive. So it's all perspective, right? And this week we're looking at how do we reflect that pure godly attitude. It's the name of our whole study. If you look at the front of your book, you see the mirror, and it says reflections. We're to reflect Christ. And as we looked last week, in light of what he has done for us, how could we not respond with that, yes, I will, even in the darkest valley, So as we look at this tonight, um, or this morning, thinking it's last night still, um, if you look in your Bible, we all have different versions and everything, but the one I was using as I was preparing for this, we just looked at what Rosemary taught on last week, and the subheading for this week in my Bible was being light bearers. And I thought that was a great subheading. And that's what Paul is telling us to do here, to shine, to live out in light of Christ dying for us, will we live for him? I don't know who wrote this, but it's a beautiful um, question posed to us. Imagine getting to heaven and God saying this to you. Before I laid the foundation of the earth, I thought of you in the days that you would live on earth. I planned out the people and the places that I would give you. I laid out your neighbors and your workplace. 
the places you would attend school, and your family. I laid out enough days to do all the good works that I had purposed for you, and I equipped you with all you would need to accomplish those purposes here. I filled you with my spirit to encourage you and remind you and lead you. I gave you my word so you would know me and know what to do. I gave you people to run with and people who needed me. Let's talk about how all that went. It's very convicting, right? To know that he's placed you at this place and time for such a time as this, with your neighbors, with your workplace, with your family, even the ladies who are around your table. So Paul's setting out to say, I want to give you some concrete ways to express your gratitude to the Lord in light of what he's done for you. And he kind of does, it says in your book, what are the two sides of the coin of our life, the different but closely related ideas. And the first one, A on your outline, is that one side, is, one side of the coin is independence. In chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's encouraging personal independence. He does not want their faith to be dependent on him being present there. He wants them to stand for the Lord, regardless of whether he's there or not. And that's an important challenge to us today. That number one, we need to stand on our own. The test of our mettle when we're alone in this world. We can obviously be nice to each other when we're here inside Sheridan House or at church, but what does it look like when we're out there in the quote-unquote real world? Are we able to control our tongues? What do we do when we face temptation? Paul's encouraging them to move beyond someone else's strength to the dependence on the Lord for what they need to do. And it shouldn't matter if anyone else will stand up. He said, I want you to stand up. And I don't know of a greater example of that. Um, before I worked at Westminster Academy, I worked for a ministry called First Priority. And they do public school campus ministry. And I'm sure many of you have heard of a day called See You at the Pole familiar with it. And for a school that has an established Christian club, it's, it's not as daunting. But for a school where there's not, nothing established, it's one kid that might go out there and stand by the flagpole to pray for their school and for their country. And they might be out there for five minutes, and that five minutes could seem like an eternity. But there was a young man many years ago at Coral Springs Middle School named Josh Tenney, and some of you might know him or his amazing mother who's in heaven now. But um, he took that chance and he stood boldly by his flagpole at his school alone and out of that a teacher saw him there and she went and she stood and prayed by him and out of that a first priority club was birthed at that campus that drew many kids over many years coming to the Lord saving faith because he was willing to stand alone and he didn't know what God would do with that but he was willing to put himself out there and stand alone one thing you can read for homework is 1 Samuel 14. There's a biblical example of that. Israelites hiding out in caves in fear, and Jonathan steps out with his armor bearer. And when he steps out and goes to fight the enemy, they come out of their caves. They come out of hiding. The world is looking for a leader, and many will follow. They'll come out of their caves, and to God be the glory and the people that come to know Christ as a result. So number two on your outline, we need to work to full completion. The end of the verse says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And we might think, what can that mean? We all know we don't work for our salvation. Clearly, clearly, Scripture teaches it's a free gift of God. 
Notice Paul doesn't say work for your salvation or on your salvation. He work, says work out your salvation, exercise or strengthen it. Has anybody been to the gym lately? It's a challenge, but we work out. We stretch, we strengthen ourselves. No pain, no gain, right? Um, it's a process of, of stepping out in faith and letting it be exercised and strengthened. And I think it's also significant that he says work out your own salvation. It's no one else's. And so often we look around at others and God's call in their life, and we need to look at our own heart. And I think there's a great example of that in Scripture when Jesus is walking on water, and, he, and Peter asks for the opportunity to come to him, and Jesus said, come. God didn't give that directive to all the disciples, and sometimes you'll hear in a sermon that Peter was the only one who had the guts to get out of the boat. Peter was the only one who had the call to get out of the boat. Our calling is unique for each and every one of us, and that's what makes it so special, that we were created in advance for the good works that he designed uniquely for you to do, a calling that he's placed on your life that he has on no one else's. So it's a beautiful illustration of that. A, on your outline, our salvation comes at the point of receiving Jesus. We begin the process of living life from the eternal perspective. We need to begin living out from our new nature what we received at the point of salvation. Um, Linda was showing me this beautiful video that her daughter took this morning of a butterfly going from the chrysalis stage, I think that's the one right before, and actually becoming a butterfly this morning in her daughter's backyard. And I can't help but think of the verse 2 Corinthians 5.17, that therefore if anyone is in Christ, then he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. It's like that picture of that butterfly looking totally different. Beyond your outline, we need to continue to grow and to mature in our worlds. He's saying work out, grow, mature. Learn to discover all that there is in the treasure of Jesus. We have to get out of the eating baby food stage and learn the joys and the fulfillment that only comes with that investment of time and deepening your walk with God. The word work literally means to carry something on to a logical conclusion. Um, Ten years ago, last night, I became a mother for the first time. And um, as I've reflected on the, the, what the past 10 years look like, you think about when they're born, they have everything that they need to live. But slowly, they have to learn how to use it. And things that might be very cute when they're little that they don't know how to do as they grow, if they're not doing them, the same thing that was cute is now frustrating. And so um, each season of motherhood is different, but it's been amazing to watch both of my girls just grow and blossom into the people that God's called them to be. But just in the same way that we grow and mature physically, God has called us to do that spiritually. It's a process of maturing. And see, we need to, to grow with fear and trembling, or awe and reverence. It's not a fear of God in that we're scared of him or terrified, but it's submission and reverence. And I love the word awe. We use the word awesome too frequently, really. But think about maybe your favorite place in God's creation. For me, it's probably the mountains. For some of you, it might be the beach. Um, if anyone's ever been to the Grand Canyon, I've heard that that just creates this this sense of how big that God is. That's what he's talking about when he says fear and trembling. Take it seriously. Realizing that the God who spoke the universe into existence wants to speak to you, has a plan for you. We need to approach our salvation in life with respect and with reverence, that we've become new creations and not just flippantly say, oh, this is just the way I am. 
the mediocre Christian life, Jesus didn't die so that we could just say, oh, this is just the way that I am. We need a submission and a reverence to God and a commitment to grow. So the fl flip side of independence is dependence. So that's B on your outline. The other side of the coin is dependence. God must work in us before he can work through us. And that's Warren Wearsby, a great quote by him. God must work in us before he can work through us. And Philippians 2.13 says that, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. One on your outline, God is the one that's working within us. And many of you have probably seen this illustration before, but it's worth repeating. Um, I brought a garden glove with me. I do occasionally get out and work in the yard. It's pretty clean, though. It's been a while. But this glove is designed to do work. It was meant for that. But until a living hand fills every single part of it and does its work for it, it's just a glove. It's just a thing sitting around. But when you put your hand in it, you can accomplish a task. You can do a great work. And it's a picture of the Holy Spirit filling our lives. We're designed for work. I love Ephesians 2.10, that we're his masterpiece, his handiwork, created to do good works, planned long ago. But we are incapable of that, or we will find ourselves exhausted and frustrated if he's not the one filling us, if he's not the one energizing us. The word work within us the, in the Greek, it literally is that picture of energy. And I love the picture of its, its human responsibility but it's also God's divine sovereignty. We're made in his image, and it's those two interchangeable things. We have a responsibility, but God is sovereign, and he works in our life. They go together. We take steps out of an act of our will, and then God provides the power for us to accomplish all that he's called us to do. He even creates the desire, which is amazing to me. Think of that verse, to will. Um, Psalm 37.4 says, um, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. doesn't mean you're going to get everything you want. It means he places the right desires in you so that then he can fulfill those. And I love that picture, to will, to actually give us the right desires. The Christian's life and maturity is at the same time a work of God and of man. The King James says, For it is God who worketh in you to both will and to do his good pleasure. Again, he energizes the desires, which is our will, in our actions, which is our behavior, our obedience and faith to him. Two on your outline, what are the tools that God uses? He uses three different tools, and the first one is the word of God, and that's why we're all here today. And there's three um, A words that aren't in your outline that I think are worth noting, and the first one is that we need to appreciate the word of God. We need to appreciate and not treat it like it's not any different than the words of man. It's the holy, written, inspired, authoritative, infallible word of God. And it has power. It's the only thing we're promised doesn't return void. Nothing else that I say, that I come up with, has a promise with it. When I read a scripture today, I'm promised that it won't return void. I think it's one of the reasons that Billy Graham's ministry was so successful. If you ever watch um, reruns of his crusades on TV, count the number of times that he says, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says over and over and over. If you watch his messages, you'll see that. And another quote from Billy Graham about the Bible, he says, the Bible is the only book that fully answers the ultimate questions that we are all asking. Who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? 
And what is the purpose and meaning of my existence? And you're here because you have an appreciation for the word. You're giving of your time to study it, to talk about it with others. And so that be, be encouraged that you're already on that path of appreciating the word of God. But the next step is to appropriate the word of God. It's beyond listening, reading. It's beyond even studying. It's letting it become a part of who you are, that God's truth become our food, our actual sustenance. John Piper has a great quote that says, don't starve the wick of your lamp by not soaking it in the kerosene of the word. Keep your wick in the word. Hold it fast. Give yourself to it. Hold it in your mind and in your heart. It's a beautiful picture. I wonder if you look back in your life if you remember the first time that God's word really became that sustenance to you. I think it's so important to journal because a lot of times we forget. But as I was preparing for this, I was recalling it was in 1993 that my grandfather was diagnosed with cancer. And we, were, um, we lived very close. They lived next door to us at one point. And as a young girl, that was one of my first experiences with really seeing someone go through cancer. And so it was scary. And I remember just dealing with fear and anxiety at that time. And at the same time, life doesn't stop, right? So my mom was a teacher, and one of her traditions in her classroom every year was to give her students Easter eggs. And they would have a scripture inside of each one with candy, so there wasn't a revolt. But um, the scripture would be personalized to that student. So it would say, for God so loved Betty that he gave his one and only son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Cast all your cares upon him, Barbara, for he cares for you. And she would put in their name, and there was power in that. And as I read all those, as I was stuffing Easter eggs, I didn't even realize it, but I was appropriating the word of God into my heart. And I remember it was just this supernatural thing of in that act of helping my mom prepare something for her class, reading so many scriptures and seeing how God personally applies them to us. I just had a peace. So think back on your life. Think of those times where God has just clearly shown up and his word has literally been um, your food to eat and sustained you. The third step is we need to apply the word. So we appreciate it, we appropriate it, and then we apply it. I love this quote, faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it, no matter how I feel, because God promises a good result. We need to trust it and act on it, and as we do, God's power is released in our lives. God has given us so many promises in his word. There's a promise for every single problem that we can come up with, but we have to get into it and dive into it. So the first tool is his word. The second tool is prayer. The activity of the Holy Spirit is related to the practice of prayer in our lives. We see in the early church, Acts 6-4 was one of the verses in our homework, that if we will give our full attention to prayer in the ministry of the world, word, you look at how the early church literally turned the world upside down. They go hand in hand. And there's a quote that says, prayer that is born of meditation upon the word of God is the prayer that soars upward most easily to God's listening ears. All that God is and all that God has is at the disposal of prayer. Prayer can do anything that God can do. And as God can do everything, prayer is omnipotent. And do you know who said that? Rosemary's great-grandfather. R.A. Torrey. And he follows that by saying, we are too busy to pray, so we are too busy to have power. 
And I confess to you, that's often me. I love to get in God's word and study because I'm, I'm doing something, but it is the hardest thing for me to sit still before the Lord and listen to him and pray. And I love it that Pam leads our prayer ministry and the power that that has. And you're such an example to us, Pam. You just have that be still, quiet spirit. There's a peace about you. And it's a result of that time that you spend in prayer. So thank you for being that example to us. And the third tool God uses, his word, prayer, the third one is the one that none of us want, but he perhaps uses just as equally as suffering. You don't really need an example because we could sit here probably the rest of the day and share stories about times where you've gone through the valley. Maybe you're in one right now, and we're either coming out of one, in one, or going into one, and we may just not know it. And, but I did want to share with you um, the words of a friend who just has a gift of writing. And she went through an experience with her son. I've got a picture of him. His name is Theo. And here he um, looks like he's healthy. He's actually still a very sick little boy. And the story of his life is nothing short of miraculous that he is even with us. But she took some time. He just turned three to write the story of his life. And I'm just going to share a few quotes from that. She said, It would be on that sixth day after he was born, before he was airlifted to Riley, that I would finally get to hold him in my arms for the first time. It was heaven and heartbreak all at the same time. And they continued at Riley Children's Hospital in Indianapolis for five months. We would eventually discover that Theo had a rare lung disease, a hypoplastic left lung, a heart arrhythmia that would dominate our lives for the next 19 months and nearly take his life numerous times, and brain damage in his frontal lobes caused by either an infection or stroke in utero. To this day, it's still a mystery as to what caused all these problems. This day of Theo's birth reframed everything in my life. I now see through a lens, through a brain, that's entirely different than if my child had been born healthy. These experiences have informed the way that Rick and I live and parent and are part of why at almost three he still sleeps next to me. His little body snuggled safely next to mine all night long. Every time he wakes in the morning or from a nap, or does something adorable or even naughty, always in the background of my mind is we came so close to missing this. And these moments are an immense gift. I love Theo with the kind of love that has stared into the face of death as it sought to steal what my heart loved most, with the kind of love that thought, that thought it may have to say goodbye. I love him with that wild love born out of suffering and heartache. Though I would never want Theo to go through any of what he experienced, I would choose him a million times over. We have a sense that from his suffering will emerge someone marked for goodness. Theodore literally meaning a gift from God. And I wanted to show you this picture because I love how she's laying on his chest. And I think God wants us to have this picture in our minds today. In Deuteronomy 33:12, it says, Let the beloved of the Lord rest between his shoulders. And that's the picture of ultimate trust, that in the midst of suffering, would we be able to lean in to Jesus? Would we be able to rest in his arms, not knowing what the future holds? You could pray for them. This is still a daily battle for them. But as you can see, she's leaning into Jesus. She's using her story, and she's using it for God's glory. God wastes nothing, but we've got to lean into him. The Apostle Paul was certainly an example 
of suffering, how it affected himself, how it affected those around him. And he was so clear with them that in the end, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He had an absolute faith. So as you go through life, as you're navigating your day-to-day, sometimes it's almost harder on the times when our life is going well. Don't forget your war chest, the Bible, prayer, the armor of God. And then when those days aren't so good, using those moments, how can I look through this day through the lens of my creator, through the one who made this day. Every single day, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. It's a decision. It's not a feeling. We so often let our feelings guide us. As the Christian reads the word and prays, he becomes more like Christ. And the more he becomes like Christ, the more the unsaved world opposes him. That's another Warren Wearsby quote. How true is that? Again, why we have to put on the armor of God. So what does an independent, dependent life look like? The two sides of the coin. Marcus Bachmuel, this is another quote in your book, says these things then are not minor blemishes of morality, peripheral human weaknesses, and an otherwise flawless Christian spectacle. Instead, they are part of what marks the watershed of the Christian life. So A, what is the conduct that should characterize our lives? Philippians 2, 14 through 15. Do all things... All things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And that's a verse that's near and dear to my heart as we were naming our children and looking at the meanings of different names. Our first daughter, who celebrated her 10th birthday last night, her name is Kate Addison. And Kate means pure, and Addison means image bearer of God. So then we would try to find a scripture that matched up with that. So as we looked at wanting her to be pure and an image bearer of God, this was the verse that God brought us to. And so it's our prayer that she would shine in a crooked and twisted generation and that she would do everything for the glory of God. And that's the next thing on your outline, number one. We are to do everything. I love Stephen Curtis Chapman, Michael W. Smith, all the... All the, who, who's with me? I just saw the Dove Awards and got to see some of them sing together. Um, but one of my favorite songs by Stephen Curtis Chapman, I'm just going to um, read you just a few of the lines. Um, it's called Do Everything. You're picking up toys on the living room floor for the 15th time today. Matching up socks, sweeping up lost Cheerios that got away. You put a baby on your hip, color on your lips, and head out the door. While I may not know you, I bet I know you. You wonder sometimes, does it matter at all? Well, let me remind you, it matters just as long as you do everything you do for the glory of the one who made you. Yes, he made you. To the glory of the one who made you, do every little thing that you do to bring a smile to his face, to tell the story of grace with every move that you make and every little thing you do. Christianity is not a religious system. It's a relationship. It's not an additive to our life. It's an alternative way to live. And until we see it that way, we won't shine. And the world desperately, desperately needs us to. And along with that, number two, we're not to complain or to argue. That's a hard one, right? We want to see the lens of Jesus. We want to look at things that way. But in our flesh, we simply will not. And I brought a picture um, from home. I absolutely love the holidays. I love to decorate. And I may or may not have already started listening to Christmas music. But, um, but I love fall. I don't skip fall. People think that people who listen to Christmas music early skip fall, and we just don't. These are my pumpkins. 
And I love this, and this is fairly new. And um, as you can see, the L had a little accident with one of my little blessings. And if you guys, have you guys read the Enneagram book? Anyone? I'm a one, so that's a perfectionist, or I prefer the, the other word they use, reformer. So I look at this as I'm watching TV, and I'm going, it's just really bothering me. I think I'm just going to throw the whole thing out. But it's only one letter. And God just spoke to my heart as I was looking at this decoration and said, what is it that you're speaking on? And in this little, little picture, God reminded me, can you be thankful when things are broken, when things are messy, when it's not what you thought it was going to be, when your expectations are not met? So I'm keeping my pumpkins, and they're going to stay out until mid-November when my Christmas stuff comes out. But, um, and funny, oddly enough, I broke them even more after taking this picture. But um, can we hold on to our gratitude when things aren't perfect? The Greek word for complaining is actually a term that sounds like what it means. It's a pronunciation that sounds much like muttering or speaking in a low tone of voice. Here's the key word that I hope makes us think of complaining differently. Ultimately, it's an emotional rejection of God's providence, will, and circumstances for one's life. It's an emotional rejection of God's providence, will, and circumstances for one's life. It makes us take it a lot more seriously. Murmuring was a real problem for the people of Israel. After God opened the Red Sea and crushed Pharaoh's army, the Israelites sang for a few moments, but then they started murmuring because they didn't have water to drink. Then God gave them water to drain the murmur because they did not have the right kind of food. And then they murmured about that again. And then they go into the land, the promised land that God had prepared for them, and they were intimidated. And sometimes we give the Israelites a hard time, but they're really just us, right? They're a picture of us. But may we learn from their lessons. May we not forget the goodness of God. Deuteronomy 1.27 also reminds us that God hears us even when we murmur in our tents. Or maybe for us, that's our bedroom. He hears it. He sees it. He knows our hearts even when we don't say it out loud. Don't complain, he says. But he also says don't argue. The word for disputing is more intellectual. And here it means questioning or criticisms directed negatively toward God or others. Arguing means to debate. And if the grumbling doesn't stop, it turns into open dissension. And how many of us have seen the destruction that that causes? James is so clear in James chapter 3, the power of the tongue. We see these forest fires out in California that are started by a little small spark and how it destroys. And that's the, the power that we have when we don't control our arguing and dissentious attitudes. Proverbs 16, 7 says, things that are an abomination to the Lord, the last thing on the list of seven, he that sows discord or dissension among brothers. And let's be honest, it's our natural tendency in our weakness and in our flesh, but we can choose to have a different attitude. And Chuck Swindoll has um, a beautiful um, writing on attitude. And many of you have probably heard it, but if you haven't, Google it today. Just put in Chuck Swindoll and the word attitude, and it'll come right up. But he says this. He says, the longer that I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes. 
than what people think or say or do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, or a home. The remarkable thing is that we have a choice every day regarding the attitude that we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. Number three, we're to be blameless and pure. God often uses the innocence of children as an example. And our route to church every week includes um, Broward Boulevard and I-95. And if you're familiar with that area, there's almost always homeless people there. And my sweet little daughter, my husband's pretty handy and does things around the house. And she was looking at this gentleman one day and she said, Mommy, Daddy should just build him a house. And in her innocence and in her sweet mind, she's just looking at this person with compassion and saying, we need to fix this. Daddy's going Daddy's to build them a house. And sometimes we look on and we judge people or we try to figure out things that we could never know. And we need to have the innocence of a child, that pure mindset of trusting God. B, what's the outcome of that kind of conduct? Philippians 2.15b says, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you will shine as lights in the world. Number one, there'll be a contrast. God wants to, us to live in a way that contrasts the world. Sometimes I enjoy looking at verses that sometimes we've gotten a little too familiar with in another version. And this is Philippians 2, 14 through 16 in the message. It says, do everything readily and cheerfully. No bickering, no second guessing allowed. Go out into the world uncorrupted. This is my favorite. A breath of fresh air in this squalid and polluted society. Provide people with a glimpse of good living and of the living God. Carry the light-giving message into the night so that I'll have good cause to be proud of you on the day that Christ returns. Is our society not polluted? Does it not need a breath of fresh air? God's calling us to that in a crooked and twisted generation to shine. And the, the word here of showing and shining, it's different than just turning a light on in a room. It's picturing more of a flashlight shining on. And in our small group leader time, um, someone shared this, another thing from John Piper. There's four things that light does. Number one, it guides. It also provides a warning. Think of traffic lights. Keeps us safe. And my last one I like that John Piper thought of is cheer. You think about Christmas lights coming. There's different purposes of light, and all of those can align with our Christian life, that we would be a guide, that sometimes we need to be a warning for people, that we would bring cheer, and that we would offer a safe harbor from our polluted world. We are not meant to withdraw from it. We're meant to shine the light on it. And that's number two, we're to shine. Last week, Rosemary talked about the difference between the sun and the moon and how the moon reflects the light of the sun. And that's, that's what we do. We don't have a source of light in and of ourselves, but we reflect the sun, the son of God. The front of our book has that picture of a mirror. It says the word reflections. That's really, as we're looking at Philippians, that's the whole um, summary of the book. How do we reflect Christ in light of what he's done for us? Many of you might recall the story of Esther in the Old Testament. 
and how basically God used her winning a beauty contest to become the queen of Persia and to save her people from a murderous plot to destroy an entire nation. Her story is recorded in an Old Testament book that bears her name, Esther. God's name never appears in it, yet his fingerprints are all over the story. But what you may not know is that the same way that um, Saul's name changed to Paul, Esther's original name was Hadassah, which means myrtle, which means compassion. And then when she became the queen of Persia, her name was changed to Satara, which means star, Esther. That Esther's name literally meant a star shining. And I think it's interesting that her name before meant compassion. And her compassion moved her to action, and she shined. She was a star that literally saved God's covenant people. And that's because she was willing. She said, yes, I will, risking her life. She's an example, and A, on your outline, we are to be an example. We're taught this all throughout the Old Testament. Israel wanted his covenant people to be that flashlight to the world. And that's our purpose as the church. And going back to the, the convicting message in the beginning that I shared of the specific spheres of influence that God has placed each and every one of us in. How do we do that? Be on your outline. We can be that moral compass. Our world is so lost in, for a sense of absolute truth, for a sense of direction, right from wrong, and we can be that compass, guiding and directing and setting an example. And going back to Billy Graham, because there's so many things we can learn from him, as he launched his crusade ministry, it would obviously involve a lot of travel. And he set out with his core team from the very beginning to launch the parameters of morality. And some of you know what I'm gonna say, that there would never be men and women alone in cars. There would never be given the opportunity for anything to happen or for anyone to even accuse. And Bob Barnes has set up that same principle here at Sheridan House, and you look at how God has blessed that. You also can look at headlines in the news and see how even though people have made fun of that rule, how in our culture today, how that would protect a lot of men, a lot of women. So it's interesting to see that as we abide by God's principles, there's a reason God has rules. They're boundaries for our blessing, for our protection. Perhaps the most powerful tool the enemy uses is in the spread of the gospel is Christians who don't light up the night, who are not flashlights, and that just blend in in the culture. But when we don't, what are the results? A, on your outline, living out the word of life and holding it out to others. Philippians 2, 16a says, holding fast to the word of life, basically presenting the gospel. 2 Timothy 1, 14, I believe was in your homework, through the power of the Holy Spirit, who lives within us, carefully guard the precious truth that has been entrusted to you. Beth Moore says this about that verse in her study titled Entrusted. God has entrusted a calling and a gifting to each of us. The calling is the same for everyone, that we're to share the gospel of Christ. Every single believer, that is why we are left on this earth after we receive Christ, because nothing, our best day here, will never compare to the glory of heaven. So the only reason we're here our calling is to share that light. The calling is the same for everyone, but the gifting is individual. The question is, can he trust me to fulfill my calling with the gifting that he has given me? Yes, I will. But remembering that every yes means a no to something else. And that's why it's okay to say no. No to the good so that you can do the best. So pray and say, God, what is the unique gifting you've given me? If you don't know that, I guarantee you that's a request that if you ask him, he will show you. 
Paul's encouraging them to share the gospel verbally, but also in their actions. Rosemary said many times that her and Bob have um, a restaurant ministry, that they've just got to go out to eat because you've got to be able to talk to the waitress and let them know that you're Christian and leave the biggest tip. We should be the most generous people on a Sunday afternoon after church when they know that we've come from church. Or when our neighbors see us leaving the driveway, um, how do we treat them later that day? They know that we've gone to church. What does that look like? Living a life that is fruitful. Be on your outline. Living a life that is fruitful. Verse 16 says, So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul is admonishing them to live so that when Jesus comes back, he'd be proud of them. And for those of you that are parents, you've had that moment where you see your kids acting out something that you've been trying to get them to grasp. And I had a moment one day, and I didn't think of this story until yesterday, or there would definitely be a picture. But um, my daughter, Macy, loves, loves, loves her baby dolls. She's going to just be an amazing mommy one day. And I came out in the living room one day, and she had no less than like 15 dolls all lined up on the couch. And she was out, and I said, oh, are you playing school? And she goes, we're doing a Bible study. <laughs> and... It's the cutest picture, and um, in my heart just, I did take a picture because I wanted to remember that moment in my mind for some day when she's a teenager, and um, <laughs> just to know that, that, that pride that we have when someone gets it, if you don't have children, someone that you've discipled, when you see them start to get it, that's how God feels about us. He's going, that's my daughter, that's my girl, she's living out, she's trusting me living a life of sacrifice. And that's C on your outline, living a life of sacrifice. Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And number one, it's an Old Testament picture. Paul is drawing a picture of the Old Testament sacrifice where an animal was placed on the altar as an offering on an offering. From the Greek, that means to be offered as a drink offering, and we saw some of this in our homework. This refers to the topping off of an ancient animal sacrifice. The offerer poured wine either in the front of or on top of the burning animal, and the wine would vaporize with the steam symbolizing the rising up offering to Jesus for whom the sacrifice was made. Paul's beauty of his entire life as a drink offering, and here he was pouring it out on the Philippians in sacrificial sacrifice. It's a beautiful picture. I had never heard that before, of that drink offering. It's a heart picture, number two on your outline. It's a heart picture. He wanted them to rejoice with them. He wanted them to remember his perspective, for me to live as Christ. In, le in life or in death, he said rejoice. His heart was that he was unaffected by any circumstance in his life. It was all in God's hands. And um, again, we have so many examples of suffering, but one that happened in our Christian community in the last week is the death of Toby Mack's son, 21-year-old young man. And within hours of finding out, I wanted to read you what Toby Mack said um, on social media as the world was watching and waiting to see how will this Christian superstar react in the darkest moment that you can go through. And he said this, we don't follow God because we have some sort of under the table deal with him, like we'll follow you if you bless us. We follow God because we love him. It's our honor. He is the God of the hills and the valleys, and he is beautiful above all things. He doesn't talk about the situation. He, he's looking at Jesus. He's saying in the hills and the valleys, you're beautiful above all things, and it's a declaration made in complete faith. 
as they experience one of the greatest losses that you can ever have in this life. He said, yes, I will. I'll praise you. I'll praise you in the valley. Paul wanted them to rejoice regardless of their circumstances. He wanted them to be living a life of gladness, living a life of gladness. He said, likewise, you should rejoice with me. It sounds so lofty and spiritual, but it all makes sense whether you were Paul in prison or the Philippian church that was struggling or the 21st century Christians that we are today to be glad and to rejoice because number one on your outline, our salvation is sure. Never doubt what your words can mean to someone that you just think you're just passing by and, and you don't even intentionally make a difference in their life forever. I remember as a young girl at my school walking through our print shop and there was a woman there. I don't know what it was that made her say it to me, what I was wearing that day, but um, she said, never let anything steal the joy of your salvation. Never let anything steal the joy of your salvation. No matter what happens here on this earth, we're not home yet. We were made for eternity and everything in our lives should reflect that. That's number two. Everything in our lives should reflect that. Every moment of our every day should reflect the fact that we are eternity bound. That's one of the ways that we shine. Our lives should express that salvation in every single action. That today would reflect more than yesterday, the working out, not working for, not working on, but the working out of our salvation. Going back to the glove, designed for good work, but completely incapable of doing so without being filled by the master's hand. Going back to Ephesians 2.10, that we were created in advance for good works that he planned long ago, an assignment that he has given specifically to you. Kent Hughes closes us with this point. He says, Paul invites them to join his double dose of joy with a double dip of their own. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The joy note sounds four times in the space of these short verses, and that is very significant. And I'll close with the words of that song from Stephen Curtis Chapman, that you would do every little thing to bring a smile to his face, to tell the story of grace. That's what we're here to do, to tell the story of grace with every move that you make and every little thing that you do. And that's our prayer as we close.